his book called Outliers, a book about strange success stories that defy. Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of the Rosetto effect. It was a small town of about 2,000 people in rural Pennsylvania which defied expectations. Compared to the national average, Rosettans died mostly from old age. They were half as likely to die from heart disease and they were 30 to 35% less likely to die from all causes, alcoholism, violence, ulcers, suicide, everything except old age. A team of medical researchers investigated the causes. They studied diet, thinking the Rosettans who, might have, uh, sorry, who had migrated in the late 19th century from Rosetto, Valforte, sorry, it's a town in Italy, Rosetto Valforteora, they'd immigrated from there. Um, they might have a, a better diet than on average, but they found that Rosettans consumed a whopping 41% of their calories from fat, including oils and cheeses and cured meats. And so researchers looked into exercise, but they didn't find that that explained their longer than average life expectancy. Rosettans were getting up, uh, weren't getting up early for yoga or a lifting session. In fact, a high proportion of them smoked like chimneys and were obese. They then considered genetics, but the researchers found that migrants from the same region in Italy who were living in other parts of the US comes. Next, the medical team thought about geographical location. Maybe living sheltered next to the foothills of eastern Pennsylvania was the reason for its surprising life expectancy. But the two neighboring towns, Nazareth and Bangor, only a few miles either side, recorded health statistics in line with national averages. Out of obvious solutions, the team decided to spend extended time in Rosetto residence. And then it dawned on them what made Rosettans live so long was the thick community of which they were a part. Regularly, the researchers would see three generations of families eating together and people opening up their homes for meals with their neighbours. Rosettans stopped in the streets to talk to each other, mostly in Italian, as they went by. They'd gather on the front porches to laugh and sing. It wasn't anything that conventional wisdom could point out that explained the health outcomes of Rosettans. It was community, it was belonging, it was love. One of the basic truths of human existence is that we long to be loved. No matter our age or background, our experiences or upbringing, we need love like we need oxygen. We want to be part of a community of love, a community that will stick by us through thick and thin. And when it comes to the church, God's family, that's the kind of community we're called to be. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The evidence of discipleship to Jesus is our love for one another. Or put it another way, to be an unloving Christian is to be a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. But you and I both know that this isn't easy, and the more I write sermons, the more I realize how far short I fall, and nothing is different about this sermon. But God has a vision 
for his people, and it's that we might be marked by genuine love. As Paul says in verse 9 in the passage, let love be genuine. Or as another translation puts it, love must be without hypocrisy. Or another translation, love from the center of who you are, don't fake it. As we continue our slower walk through Romans chapter 12, and as we make our way through this chapter, we need to remember that it all flows from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Here the Apostle says, In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And the next couple of chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, are all a description of what it is to live ourselves, uh, give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God in different areas of life. But we don't want to miss where Paul goes first. When it comes to giving ourselves fully to God as living sacrifices, Paul turns first to God's people. What does it mean to live as a living sacrifice, fully devoted to God? Well, he turns first to the church. It means giving yourself to his people. And just like last week, this week again is focused on living as a sacrifice to God by giving ourselves up to the church community. But there's a difference to last week. Last week, Megan talked about finding our specific role in the community, using the gifts God has given us to gift it to each other. But this week's focus is on a virtue common to us all. What are we all to do, though we might have different roles to play in the community? We are all to love genuinely. So this morning we'll look at what this passage tells us about genuine love. Our culture loves love. If you ask 100 people in the inner west... Do you think people should be loving? Of course they'd say, 100% of them would say yes. But we'd struggle to define what love is. The slogan of our culture, love is love, doesn't tell us much about what love is, besides that it's love. And so today's short passage helps describe what genuine love looks like. Genuine love hates, genuine love is devoted Genuine love keeps on going. So genuine love hates. Did that provocative subtitle prick your ears up? I get it from verse 9. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. The Greek underlying the English is stronger than hate. It's, it's be horrified by evil and we're to cling or more literally glue ourselves inseparably to what is good. And so... First and foremost, that gives us an impression of love that isn't a watered-down thing. Love is not a watered-down thing. Love isn't pleasantness. Love isn't niceness. It's much more. Genuine love is horrified by evil and wants to cling on to it, uh, wants to cling on to good with all of its life. In other words, genuine love binds itself to God's moral order. And this isn't hard for us to imagine um, that this is the case. So I don't know if any of you watch uh, Louis Thoreau's documentaries on the ABC, but so many of the documentaries involve Louis following families of family members who are suffering in profound ways. And so one documentary was following the families of those people, of some people addicted to alcohol. And you can see the pain etched on the faces of the family as they described who their child used to be and who they've now become. And in one case on the documentary, as, as they watched their son 
um, move out of view of the camera saying, I just want to get another bottle of vodka. And then later on in that interview, this son says, I don't want to live anymore. The parents have a deep hatred towards that which is destroying their child. And in this case, it's alcohol. As one author puts it, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Genuine love hates. It hates that which is evil and clings to that which is good. And so, at an interpersonal level, what does this look like for us? Hating what is evil and clinging on to what is good. I think it needs to mean that we don't run away from hard conversations or from the costly work of walking with someone through a moment of repentance and growth. It's so much easier to ignore character flaws and ungodliness in others or to move to a a different circle of friends and skip over the hardness of love. But if we're to be genuine lovers, we need to be prepared to call out selfishness and sin in each other's lives. And of course, never judgmentally, but out of humility, knowing full well that we are all dependent on God's grace. So we don't avoid hard conversations, but it also means that we need to hold fast. We need to be glued to what is good. We've got to let God's moral order, God's truth, define what is good. And that's to be the compass by which we all navigate life. We need to help each other. We need to encourage each other to glue their lives onto that in a world that makes it so easy to become unstuck. This is what love, genuine love, looks like. It's concerned about each other. It's concerned when we see each other fall. It's concerned when we see unhealthy things in each other's lives. And it's really concerned that we help each other stick on to what is good. We help each other. I remember a time in my life when my spiritual life was slowly beginning to dry up. It's not too long ago. Actually, maybe about six years ago. And um, it was partly in response to a really good friend of mine I'm having done something very um, unloving to his family and sort of partly to me as well. And as my life was sort of getting caught up in that decision of his, I began to feel angry at him. And this anger was being seen by someone at church. And this friend of mine at church took me aside and he asked me what was going on. And he prayed for me. He prayed for me. And it was that moment that helped me realize that something was going wrong. It was just such a small act of genuine love that makes all the difference. Someone who's concerned about me deeper than just being nice and pleasant. That's what love is. Genuine love. Genuine love hates evil. Genuine love is devoted, verse 10. So moving on to verse 10. Love one another with mutual affection or The NIV puts it, be devoted to one another in love. But the thing about these translations, both those translations, is that it misses something that's pretty obvious in the original language. The reason we're to be devoted to each other and loving each other with mutual affection, like a circle of love, the reason why we're to do that is because we're family. So I think it could be translated, show mutual family devotion to one another. That's what Paul is saying. Show mutual family devotion to one another. So we're family. Not united by blood that's 
biologically similar, but with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how closely we're tied together. We're the body of Christ with, in a sense, his blood flowing through us and nourishing our life together. As blood tends to do, it nourishes life. We all share that in common. Not biological love, our blood as you do with your biological family. We share a common blood that is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it nourishes our life together. So we are family. And the challenge for us is to live this out. That's the challenge for us. And Paul says what it looks like to live that out is to be devoted to each other. Show mutual family devotion to each other. And to be devoted to something is to give yourself to its cause. That's what devotion means, to give yourself to something's cause. And so in the context of these verses, we're to be devoted to the other person's good. We're to be devoted to the other person's good. So your cause becomes the other person's good, and it's mutual. Imagine living in a community like that. That's about your cause, and your cause is about their cause, and it's all about growth and, and, and nourishment. So family means being devoted to each other, and it's mutual. And this mutual devotion, uh, devotion sorry, being wholly committed to each other, is seen in what Paul goes on to say, outdo one another in showing honour. Outdo one another in showing honour. We're so used to being in places where we're in competition with the other person to lift ourselves higher. But Paul is saying that it's in the DNA of the church, with our common blood, to go with that metaphor again, it's in the DNA of the church to be like Jesus. It's in our DNA to want to lift each other up, just as Jesus lived to lift us up. We're to be in competition, outdoing one another, honouring the other person. So we're meant to be in competition, but honouring the other person. It's incredible, this vision of the community of God. This type of thick, other-person-centred community, being mutually devoted to each other's good, is what science is realising that we all need. And so the Rosetto effect that I introduced the sermon with isn't meant to be surprising. So there's a journal called the Journal of Happiness Studies. Now, that's a good title. You'd read that journal. The Journal of Happiness Studies looks at what distinguishes quite happy people from less happy people, and one factor that consistently distinguishes those two groups isn't your money, how much money you have, isn't your health, it's not your security, attractiveness, or IQ. What distinguishes consistently happier people from less happy people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships. This is what science is is showing clearly, and I read this in a journal article, it's very metaphorical for a scientific journal article, whenever there's an exchange of genuine caring, it is as if the roots of your soul are being fed. That's nice for a science journal. Uh, Robert Putnam, a social sciences researcher, says this, concludes, the single most common finding from half a century's research on life satisfaction from around the world is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. So for us to love one another, as Paul is saying in these verses, with mutual devotion, it takes time and space. 
which means we need to be willing to open up our lives to each other and our homes to each other. And in terms of how we structure things as a church, this might be being involved in fellowship groups. Fellowship groups are really all about time to spend with each other, to get to know each other, to open each other up to what's happening in life. It's just a a structure to provide time so we can get to know each other in such a way that we can be genuinely, mutually devoted to each other. If you're not in a fellowship group, let me know. So genuine love hates, genuine love is devoted, and genuine love keeps on going. So to be deeply involved in people's life is hard work. Um, C.S. Lewis is the one who said that the only way to be sure your heart doesn't break is to not give it to anyone. Loving each other is hard work. And someone this week I was talking to, unconnected from the church, said to me, he, he just said, I hate people, I've been hurt too much. Genuinely loving is hard work. So Paul says in verse 11, in zeal, don't be lazy, this is my translation, but be set on fire by the Spirit. In zeal, don't be lazy, but be set on fire by the Spirit. One commentator says, the temptation is to lose our steam in our lifelong worship of God. And so Paul says, seek out the Spirit's help. Don't lose your spiritual fervor. And what the Spirit will help you to do in verse 12 is, He will help you rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, and persevere in prayer. That is, in the messiness and strains of living a life of genuine love, the Spirit will help us keep a hold of hope. It acknowledges that the life moving towards glory is one strewn with difficulties. But hope, the the hope of glory, keeps us moving forwards. He says, hold on to hope. He says, be patient in all the troubles that you meet. Not, not passively patient, not just letting the, the troubles of life and other people's life pile on top of you, but actively steadfast, actively patient, which sort of leads on to what he says next, to be persevering in prayer, to give over to God the worries of your life and the worries of other people's lives, and to ask for God to give you power to keep on going. So love, genuine love, keeps on going. And with prayer in mind, my fellow site pastor at St. John's Ashfield, he, he wrote this. It's a bit of a litmus test, I think, for our love for each other. He asks, um, do you pray for one another? That's maybe the clearest sign of genuine love. No one sees that except God. And yet that's what flows out of a heart that is devoted to others. And what in turn will keep your heart burning for others even when they're complete weirdos. That's in the words of Rich, so he must be talking about people at St. John's, not not you guys. But that's a small litmus test for, for our love for each other. Genuine love prays for each other. No one sees that except God. Sincere, authentic, genuine love is a love passionate enough to hate what is not good for each other and not let it just go under the radar It's a love devoted to each other, mutually devoted. And it's a love that keeps on going through hope, patience, and prayer. This is what genuine love looks like. And I think one of the most beautiful things about this vision of love, which I've sort of been trying to emphasize, is its mutuality. That one person 
or that you have the other person's good in mind and the other person has your good in mind. And the reason you can have the other person's good in mind is because you know that your good is being kept in mind by someone else. It's a beautiful vision of a circle of love. But it poses a problem. What if that's not the case? What if I'm not convinced that if I was to aim for the good of another person, the other person would return the favour? Now, Sarah Rudin, in her fascinating book, Paul Among the People, she gives a very fresh translation of Paul's letters. It's a bit crazy in areas, but it's, it's fresh and, and, and full of life. She asks this question. How can anyone love like this with mutual devotion? How can anyone love like this, she asks, without going insane? And here is her answer. It's fantastic. It might be possible to love like this if love is not an ethereal abstract standard, an impossible assignment written in lightning on a rock, but it might be possible to love like this if love is a living God. Suppose the love people need to carry out, suppose that love that we need to carry out loves them and helps them, sometimes through the other people it loves, but sometimes merely as itself. Suppose this love reaches out, it calls, it never gives up on failure. Suppose that, though human beings fail, most of the time, love never does. Do you see what she's doing? She's directing our eyes to look at the God of love who loves us and will sustain us. And she says, love never fails, which might sound familiar. It's from another very famous passage on love in, in Paul. And Paul can say that, that love never fails because our faithful and steadfast God is love. Love isn't an ethereal, abstract standard. Love is Jesus. So how can we aim for one another's good even if the other person won't return the favour? Well, the thing about Jesus, the God who is love, is that he makes the first move. He initiates. From 1 John 4, 10 to 11, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, showed initiation and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. And so going back to chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's initiative-taking mercy, in view of Jesus, who experienced the agony of loving and being unloved in return, who knew the pain of being loved insincerely with hypocrisy. Remember when he was kissed on the cheek by Judas, he knew the pain of not having loved returned, but he returned it with love. All to make us members of his family, sons and daughters of a heavenly father who will never give up on us, never reject us, never turn his back on us. So sisters and brothers, in view of all this, in view of God's mercy, love genuinely and love concretely in the often mundaneness of our day-to-day -day existence, but very real um, existence or experience of life. May we as a people love even when it hurts and even if we don't receive love in return. Paul says, let love be genuine. Let's pray.
Our God of love, we pray that your spirit, which you've poured out into our hearts, the spirit of love, we pray that it sustains our life together of genuine love. Father, give us the power to care for each other enough to be able to encourage each other to cling on to what is good, but also move away from that which isn't good. Sustain our love for each other so that we are devoted to each other, to each other's honor and to each other's good, mutually. Father, might this continue to be a characteristic of our life together. Please, please overflow us with this type of love and we pray that you help us love even when it's hard. Give us hope, give us patience and help us be prayerful in all things. In the name of Jesus who loved us, we pray. Amen.